Welcome to Cine Study, comprehensive takes on what makes movies great. Now for our 45th episode, the Green Knight Mini Review. Hello everybody, welcome back to Cine Study. My name is Dylan, and today's episode will be, as mentioned, a mini review on the Green Knight. I think I mentioned last episode that the next episode would be a What Makes Blank Great. I'm still writing that, and obviously this just came out and I had a chance to see it opening night, so I thought I'd get my thoughts out there. So, What Makes Blank Great, still in progress, coming soon. For now, Green Knight, let's go. In typical study fashion, this review will be broken into both spoiler-free and spoiler-full sections, so you can listen to this both before and after seeing The Green Knight. I want to start off with just a very basic thought, and maybe this thought is not in the greatest uh, faith, because I just want to say it kind of hurts that people, probably there's some people out there who are going to choose to go see Old instead of The Green Knight. Um, look, I'm not attacking those people. I'm just saying it kind of hurts that there's people still hanging on, clinging on to Shyamalan, if you will, thinking maybe this is the one. When, you know, you got some interesting, experimental, and unique stuff that you're not going to find with a lot of other directors showing up right here in the latest A24 movie. So, I don't know. It, it's, like I said, I can't really say that because I haven't seen old. So, you know, wh- wh- who am I to say this? But, you know, it's just a hunch. All right, I'm going to give, like, a quick premise. I'm not going to go very far into the story at all, even less than the trailer shows, because I think going in pretty blind is a good way to do this. Uh, and then I'm going to give some kind of overview thoughts and then we'll get into some specifics. So the story, in case you haven't already seen this. So the story revolves around this guy, Garwin. Uh, it's not at all how it's spelled, but that's how it's said. And uh, he doesn't really have much to his name. In fact, on Christmas, the king asks him, you know, Garwin, could you maybe tell us some tales about your life? You know, what's your life story? What adventures have you gone on? And he realizes he doesn't really have anything to show for himself. Uh, so sure enough, when a certain green knight walks through the gates, uh, which the green knight is basically a tree man, think like a shrunken ent from the Lord of the Rings, Garwin's like, now's my chance when the green knight offers a sort of challenge or game to any of the knights of the round table, because this is an Arthurian tale, if I haven't already mentioned it. So Garwin steps up, he's like, all right, I'll accept this challenge, and the rest of the movie kind of follows him, accepting that challenge, the ramifications of that challenge, and a certain quest he has to go on in relation to that challenge. That's all I'll really say about the story, but I do want to say it's a great premise. Like, once you hear what the challenge is the Green Knight offers, and once you see what Garwin does, uh, which hopefully, you know, if you haven't seen the movie, I really hope you don't watch any trailers. Just go just go see it. Uh, you know, maybe that spoils that this is a positive review for me, but this is definitely a good one to go in blind to as far as the challenge goes, because they kind of give it away in the trailer, and I think it'd be a, a cool surprise if you don't really know what it is ahead of time. But that challenge is a great idea, and the quest with its many stops and, and you know, tangents along the way, it's all just filled with some really solid concepts, uh, but the overarching narrative of what Garwin has to do is a very strong idea. This is a movie that is, you know, a lot of classic adventure and fantasy, but blended with sort of a moody and deliberate and uh, sort of meditative atmosphere and overtone to it all. And it's got some dips and turns into the surreal and supernatural where you sort of have to piece some things together on your own, or perhaps they're open to many interpretations, which I'll get to some specifics later on. I do think it is quite possible that this movie will get overhyped very quickly because it is a very visually incredible movie. It has some weaker and convoluted story points, and I'll mention some of those in the spoiler full section. Um, they're not necessarily like thin story points. 
they just kind of leave a lot to the viewer to piece together, uh, which which can be very good. But it kind of gets lost in the fact that we know there's a driving story at play. There's a challenge we're trying to pursue. So when it kind of dips into these other ideas, but leaves a lot to you, it's kind of like, all right, I'm not sure I want to distract myself thinking about this little tangent thing. We've still got a quest to do here. That was sort of an idea or a thought in my head through a lot of this movie. Again, going to get to some specifics later. These are just some some broad ideas I wrote down. So I think what's going to happen is some of those story points, they're going to come more to the forefront later on once the sort of visual uh, spectacle wears off a little bit, maybe. You know, people think about it in the coming days, weeks, months after seeing it or rewatch it a couple of times. Some of that will begin to shine through. At the same time, people will begin to figure out some more interpretations and be able to get a more concrete read. A lot of my thoughts on this movie... I haven't had much time to reflect on them. You know, I haven't had a lot of time to try and think about what I view as happening in certain scenes because there is some abstract, there is some ambiguity. So I just want to put that out there. I'm not coming here with the most concrete interpretations. Here's what I think uh, this means and that means. And here's some of the really strong themes. I saw this very recently, so so a little bit more like first thoughts. I, I think an accurate comparison to this movie, maybe not the most accurate, but something you could kind of like hold it in the same ballpark as is Blade Runner 2049. I'm a big Blade Runner 2049 fan. I think it's better than Blade Runner, quite frankly. Um, it's another one that is a visual spectacle uh, with a pretty straightforward story underneath. The story has some great themes, um, but you might be like, okay, the story hits some pretty basic beats and uh, you know, and it moves along at such a deliberate and slow pace that maybe we don't get as far into some of those ideas uh, as as some people may want. I think that's a fair comparison for the Green Knight. Visual spectacle, some people are going to be fully invested in that spectacle and not care about the story. Other people are going to look into the story and be like, all right, there's a couple beats in here that don't really make the most sense. But, you know, at the end of the day, Blade Runner 2049 is still held up as quite an achievement. And I think the Green Knight in consensus will probably be along a similar path. And I don't want to downgrade this movie at all because I actually really, really enjoy this movie. It's a strong thumbs up and I'll give my rating later on. I just want to kind of like, if anybody is listening to this who hasn't seen it, like lower expectations to some degree, because, you know, this movie got delayed for a year. The buildup and the hype has been real for many people for like a year and a half. And so if you go in with the wrong expectations in terms of this will be a masterpiece, or if you go in with the wrong expectations of like, uh, this will be like Lord of the Rings, or this will be like Blade Runner 2049, and then it's like somewhere in between, or, or it kind of differs from what you think. You may be let down or you may have a tough time fully getting into it. And this is on top of the fact that this is a David Lowry movie. And he seems to me like a director who like he has a vision. He follows through on it. He's not going to throw in a bunch of popcorn type, you know, just crowd pleasing things. He has a story and a vision in mind and he sticks to it. He's one of the more curious directors, I think, working right now. Uh, a ghost story is the one I kind of reference as the other example of everything I just mentioned. All right, but anyway, I'm, I, I feel like I'm like almost selling this movie short, like saying like, uh, you know, it's not going to be a masterpiece that you think it is. I think I may just be kind of phrasing this all incorrectly. It's more just like, I think uh, it's very easy to go into this movie with the wrong expectations. I think there are some story points that don't necessarily make the most sense. But, you know, I'm sure David Lowry has an idea of what certain things are supposed to mean. But because of that, you know, there's a little bit of detachment there because you're trying to figure all this out while also juggling in your head that we have a driving story we're pushing through. It's just ultimately a bit of a mixed bag in some degrees, but I think definitely leaning far, far more positive. So I don't know. I guess this was all just a precursor to what I will now talk about in some of the specifics as well as in the slower full section, which is still a ways off. 
Let's talk some performances. Dev Patel obviously anchors this movie as Sir Garwin. Uh, he pulls off the hero pretty well. He's cool. He's strong. He also has a lot of moments of vulnerability, which of course you need for a main hero like this. And we're actually with Garwin for, you know, 99% of this movie. I expected there to be a little bit of deviations into other characters at times going in, but Garwin is on screen, you know, most of the movie. It, it's almost a character study in that sense, much more than it is some adventure quest movie or anything like that. And he's definitely a hero you pull for despite his flaws. I think that's where Dev Patel bringing in sort of the vulnerability and the emotion is what's really necessary because it'd be very easy to feel totally detached from this character because he makes some questionable decisions and the way David Lowry wants you to feel about him in cer certain scenes is fairly obvious. And I do think there is some degree of coldness and separation from this guy because yeah, he does make some irrational and uh, impulsive and sometimes bad decisions. But uh, ultimately, Dev Patel is very strong in this movie. I think he's, you needed a guy to really carry this thing. Uh, with the way it's written and the way it's told. And I think Dev Patel stepped up to the plate and uh, and got a good hit. All right, so some of these supporting players here. We've got Alicia Vikander. There's a certain component of her being in this movie that's really interesting. I don't really want to ruin it because it was a bit of a surprise to me. And like Joel Edgerton's character, who I'm going to mention in a little bit here, I don't feel like I really have the best read. I have one interpretation that I straight up got from Alicia Vikander and something she said about it that's like, okay, I sort of see then. Uh, why a certain decision is made regarding her being in this movie. I know that sounds very ambiguous. You'll get it when you see it. But regardless, she gives a very compelling performance, and it's sort of a performance that has to hit close to home for Garwin, and I think she definitely pulls that off. She kind of brings the main emotional attachment for Garwin, the only character relation that seems to be very significant to him. I feel like her appearances in this movie are like the perfect amount, too, where it's not like it's introducing this really long side plot or anything, or like something that's going to distract from the main challenge or the main quest. Um, but it's there to give the right motivation. She kind of comes in at like the perfect spots to like remind the audience some of Garwin's attachments and some of the reasons he's doing things that he's doing in this movie. I do think maybe a little bit more could have been done with her character, but I feel like you can kind of uh, justifiably say that about everybody in this movie who's not named Garwin. So it's not the most fair thing to say, but Alicia Vikander, solid in this movie. Quite interesting and one idea that I can't really talk about because I think it's a, a good little surprise uh, for those viewing it for the first time. I'll mention it in the spoiler full section more than likely. Um, just mentioned him a second ago, Joel Edgerton. He's kind of the most charisma in this movie, um, but like I said, not really a role I fully understand the significance of. I understand it in the original tale. I went uh, and I read sort of the synopsis of the actual Arthurian legend this does have a lot of deviations as far as like the third act, I would say. And in it, his character makes a lot more sense. Here, it kind of feels like an afterthought to some degree. I don't know. And I, I think there's maybe some subtext that's uh, being added in with his character. But I'm not going to talk about this too much uh, here. I, I just think he's, he's a fun screen presence here. Um, the scene with him, it was probably one of the lower points for me in this movie, the segment that he kind of appears in. But he's still a fun guy to watch, and he has some good uh, some good dialogues and back and forth with Garwin. So about Ralph Innocent, he is the booming voice of the Green Knight. The Knight is what I'll remember most from this movie. The entire uh, look of the Green Knight, the sound of his voice, which sounded amazing in theaters. They also do this kind of layering with it, so there's the main kind of booming one, and then there's this almost like off-kilter, higher-pitched one right beneath it that you really have to like think about to actually pick up on beneath what is Ralph Innocent's booming voice. His voice gives this character this intimidating and also kind of like all-knowing 
way about him. Uh, I, the Green Knight would not be half of what he is. He's amazing visually, but without the amazing sound of the voice and the performance given by Ralph Innocent in that voice, he wouldn't be half of what he is. So big credit uh, right there. Uh, Barry Kagan, Keegan, Kagan, he's in this. Um, you may know him as uh, a certain creepy character in The Killing of the Sacred Deer. When I saw him in the cast for this, I'm like, I bet you he plays a sort of creepy and evil character here. And sure enough, he somewhat does. Uh, he's kind of got this loose and stumbling way about him. He's kind of just like uh, stumbling through this like abandoned battlefield for a good portion, this nice long take. Like I mentioned, he's kind of playing this creepy sort of villain thug type character. And I like that they chose somebody that's less physically intimidating for that. Like he's shorter than Dev Patel. Dev Patel rides on a horse when he's talking to Barry Kagan. So he doesn't really feel like a threat. And so it kind of sneaks up on you. It's not really a big spoiler or anything, but uh, because you can definitely tell that something is uh, askew when you're when you're talking to him. I like that they kind of put him in that lower position in that shot I just mentioned and, and have this guy that looks a little bit more scrawny. Like, what can this guy really do? And you'll have to wait and see what uh, what happens with his character. He was definitely the highlight among the supporting cast, minus Ralph Innocent's vocal performance. All right, let's talk about some other technical things. Costumes, unbelievable in this movie. The king and queen outfits, uh, because in the first scene we meet, uh, who I believe must be King Arthur and his queen, whose name I do not know because I'm not super familiar with Arthurian stuff. Uh, they have these kind of halo attachments to their crown that are very visually striking. I really like the design of those. And uh, they're this circle, which the circle is kind of a motif in this castle that they live in, the light designs and the windows, a lot of circles. Uh, it's very, uh, like I said, visually striking. Uh, looked great on the big screen. Obviously, you've got, you know, the classic fantasy stuff, these scarves and boots and chain mail. And I think every outfit in this movie has just beautiful details and are, you know, each one is very intricate and adds certainly a lot to uh, the immersiveness of this movie in the setting it is being told in. Got to give a little credit to Dev Patel's uh, facial hair and flowing locks. Just kind of rules in this movie. Another shout out here to the Green Knight because I saw a behind the scenes photo of the Green Knight. Almost everything you see with this tree man is practical. It's an actual outfit. I think there's probably some touches of CGI here and there just to make everything look polished and great. But the actual outfit itself and the face and the you know sticks and branches sticking off of him was all practically done. So that's an amazing job by the costume designers here. I definitely think this movie is worthy of a costume Oscar nomination. Uh, I'd be very disappointed if it didn't get one. And the Green Knight, uh, as far as like kind of makeup and prosthetics goes, is insanely impressive. So uh, I, I can't sell that enough how awesome the Green Knight is. And that's what I'll remember from the Green Knight the most is every scene that has the actual Green Knight in it. Talk about some kind of set designs and locations. I think there's sort of a combination of scouting, of building, and of CGI when it comes to landscapes. Um, I know the main castle, the Green Knight first rides into, practical, because that's the same behind-the-scenes photo I just mentioned. Uh, I really like the look of that castle. Again, it's this kind of circular hall with these windows that cast light down, which I'll, I'll, I'll come back to light in a second. These big archways, and it, it's just a really uh, beautiful and extravagant set, uh, which is very impressive. You've got a couple other sort of castle settings like that throughout the movie. Landscapes, I think the backdrops to landscapes are often done with some CGI. There's definitely some CGI when uh, Garwin first leaves the castle. It's hard to tell these days. I'll be quite honest. Sometimes I'm like thinking in my head, like, I think that's CGI, but can I really say for certain? No, I can't really say for certain. Um, there, there are some effects done with nature 
Uh, I guess I'm kind of transitioning into effects here. I might as well talk about some effects. There are some effects done with nature and moss and, and flowers growing in a, in a short time span that look pretty strong. And I especially like when the Green Knight enters the hall, he sets this axe down and the moss starts to come in between the cobblestones of the floor. I thought that looked great. Had a cool visual flow to it, watch the, watching the moss kind of spread through those cracks. There's a certain uh, CGI supernatural being or herd of beings that uh, Sir Garwin comes across that I won't spoil in case you haven't seen the trailer. Those looked pretty good. Um, I feel like the actual design of them is a bit odd. And if you've seen it, you know what I mean. I don't know. It's like the faces and the bodies are a bit strange, but this is what Lowry does. Uh, but I thought they looked good. And, and the scale in relation to Garwin was quite interesting. Again, don't want to say too much. Um, but yeah, I thought those looked good. Uh, and you've got a fox that follows Sir Garwin on a large portion of this quest. The fox is kind of one of those obvious CGI things. I don't even think it's the necessarily the greatest looking fox. Uh, if you got something more along the lines of like the recent Disney uh, animal CGI work, uh, Lion King and Jungle Book, I thought that would, you know, that could look really great. But there's nothing that really detracted too much as far as the fox goes. Um, but certainly one of the weaker points of the CGI. Back to kind of set design and stuff like that a little bit. The production design of a place called the Green Chapel is amazing. It's overgrown with all these vines and moss, and it looks completely abandoned, and it's it's a very well done and very detailed location. And like I said, just the landscapes in this movie are very strong. You get these large sweeping shots of these valleys and hills and mountains, you know, rock banks and stuff like that. It all looks good. You know, I, I said it at the top, and I don't want to, you know, just keep repeating it over and over again, but this is a movie you got to see in theaters if you're going to see it because on the big screen it does look incredible and a lot of that is just the amazing visual design of this movie. Let's get into some of that. Let's talk about some of the lighting and stuff. It's bold. It's beautiful on the big screen. It plays with shadow and silhouette very well. There's a couple of really great shots of shadow and silhouette. Um, there's a certain scene where Sir Garwin uh, goes underwater and everything becomes red and he is just a black shadow in that red I really love that shot. I wish I could use that as the shot to post on Instagram, but I haven't haven't found it anywhere. Another example is Garwin looking at a tree and kind of imagining as if that tree were the green knight, and you're getting these flashes of green lightning that illuminate that silhouette, which look really very cool. And I like the actual, you know, on off of that lightning uh, and that and that kind of idea, of just these quick glimpses and Garwin, you know, going through all these possibilities in his head. Something that was very cool on the big screen, and I have to think you can only get this in a theater. In the opening scene, which I mentioned is in kind of this uh, hall, which it's not really the opening scene, but towards the beginning of the movie, in this circular hall, there's these tiny windows, and they offer these sort of pinpricks of white light that sometimes are covered by a character, and then the camera moves, and now those pinpricks are above a character's shoulder. And what would happen is, since the rest of the frame was so dark, in the actual theater, you would see this like shaft of light shoot from the screen all the way to the back of the theater. I've never seen that happen before. Maybe it's happened in other movies, but... Uh, there was this balance of darkness in this movie, which is a very dark movie at times. Sometimes you even struggle to see what's going on. I don't really hold that against the movie too much because it's all about the atmosphere I was trying to create. But with that contrast of darkness to those just tiny pinpoints, you were getting a very, very uh, noticeable and cool effect. I, I'd be interested to see if anybody else experienced that in their theater or uh, you know, in the future if somebody watches this at home, if they get anything like that. Again, maybe this happens all the time. I've just never noticed it, but it definitely stood out here, so... That was very cool, and I have to think that was an intentional idea of how that would look in theaters, so well done there. If you're somebody who likes color symbolism, I think you're going to get, uh, you're going to have a field day with this movie. 
Um, I'm not going to mention all the specifics here because there's too many. I mean, the movie's called The Green Knight. You know it's going to play with some colors and stuff, right? I feel like that's kind of in the title. And like I mentioned, you get these sort of bold colors that envelop the whole screen when you're looking at maybe the sky or maybe you're underwater, stuff like that. And I think it's a lot of fun to try and piece together some of the reads there. Um, so here's just some ideas I have, and I'm not going to go through all the specifics or else I'd have to get into some spoiler territory. But run with these as you may. I found out whenever it was red, I was getting some ideas of either rage or passion, and you'd have to kind of decide which in that moment. It's usually pretty obvious, but I mean, that one's pretty obvious. You know, green is nature in this movie. It's the green knight. The knight is a tree who's sort of green. But more specifically, it's interesting to think of green being nature as like an inevitability because, you know, nature is a force that can't really be subdued. It's going to happen the way it wants to happen. And I had a, I had a ball thinking of it in that sense whenever the color would pop up. There's one really specific example of some of this color stuff that I want to mention in the spoiler full section. Maybe not even about a certain item or anything like that that you think. It's a certain pairing of shots that I thought was very interesting. But the last one is gold. I'd look out for gold and yellow as sort of a sign of character. Having a lot of character on the same lines. And when when is that yellow or that gold being questioned? When is the character being questioned? When is... Uh, character maybe taking a, a little bit of a dip is interesting to see so those are just some thoughts i don't want to mention all the specifics because again i'd have to get into too many like scene oriented things that i don't want to say in this section so maybe i'll say a few ideas i had in the uh sport full section but i always like looking at that even though you know it's kind of straightforward a lot of that is just you know subconscious it's like okay you see red you know it's anger um but it's always nice to think of some of those symbols and uh piece them together so i don't know something to look for uh so so the themes because uh, this kind of ties in. That's something that, uh, like I said, it's going to take a while of me thinking about this movie. And maybe if I did this episode, you know, six months from now, I'd feel like really concrete about all my ideas about this movie. Um, the main and most obvious takeaway is sort of this honor above all idea. And of course, that's a big thing in this sort of time period and setting, um, but specifically to Garwin's character. I, I read this letterbox review and I'm going to try and find it and link it in the description of this episode because I don't have it in front of me. It said a very interesting thing, which is that a lot of the main questions that this movie asks regarding honor or, or some other ideas it deals with, with like romance and, and things like that, can be looked at two separate ways. And the sort of idea of honor is a really strong one of those. Like you can look at this movie as sort of like honor leads to the best possible outcome. You know, like honor, if you follow through with it, saves a lot of other trouble, a lot of other headaches, a lot of other issues. It's the best, most guiding principle somebody can follow. At the same time, you can look at this movie in its third act and some of the ideas it has throughout in the exact opposite way, which is that the idea of honor and following through just for your idea of your personal honor or, or maybe masculinity in this sense just kind of leads to ruin. Like things just will spiral. Things will, you know, cause way more harm than good. And you can very easily and very justifiably with evidence from the movie argue for either one of those points. And I think that's like fascinating because that is a almost impossible line for a director to walk. A director will almost always have their answer to that question sprinkled in a little bit, whether intentional or not. But here I feel like you could definitely, with evidence from the film, say either one of those things and have a case. And like I said, that's like that that can be a sign of this movie has no idea what it wants to say here in this movie i feel like it's uh, a perfect question that's asked like a perfect duality that's set up where like you can view the entire movie in one or two of those lights maybe it just reaffirms what you already think maybe it changes your mind but it's so hard for a director to put both of those ideas any ideas that directly contradict each other in a movie into a movie without letting their own bias slip through 
or answering that question to some degree. So that's where I give big props to this movie and some of the big ideas it has, especially throughout its third act. So uh, that's that's a big selling point for me in this movie that I was reflecting on throughout the final 20 minutes of this movie and for hours after. And it's articulated very well in a letterbox review that, again, I'm going to link where I was like, yes, this is exactly what I was thinking throughout this movie. Like, what does this movie really want me to think? And then realizing towards the end, like, doesn't really necessarily want me to think either. It's proposing both and letting you come to your own conclusions, which is, like I said, very hard to do. So uh, I'll link that review, and it has some of the other questions that uh, that David Lowry asks in this movie. Hopefully I find it, because I don't want to, you know, not deliver on that promise. But yeah, real quick rating before I wrap up this spoiler free section. 8 out of 10. Uh, you know, I was tempted at first to put a 9 out of 10 and some of those thinner story points and stuff that just it's so impossible to make rhyme or reason in my head of kind of came to light on the drive home. I was like, I can't really commit to a 9, but it's certainly the, the visual spectacle is so strong. I love the supernatural turns. I think the premise of the challenge and the quest is so amazingly good uh, that a lot of that really drives this story forward, even if I don't understand where certain characters fit in or what certain things are supposed to mean in David Lowry's abstract brain. Uh, 8 out of 10, this is definitely a recommend and a recommend in theaters. Go see this. This is one that definitely deserves to be seen on the big screen and heard on the big screen. It sounds great. It's got a great score, which I didn't even mention throughout this whole thing. It's got that very medieval great score. It really sets the mood. Solid movie. Go check this out, guys. The Green Knight. Thumbs up. All right, I think that's actually it for the spoiler-free section. This is a movie that's hard to talk about without going into some spoilers. And honestly, in the spoiler-full section, I'm just going to be talking about some stuff I really love, too. Not like a ton of issues, necessarily, but just some scenes I want to celebrate. Um, So stick around for that if you've seen The Green Knight, or maybe you just don't even care, or maybe this review did not sell you at all. Um, But regardless, this has been the spoiler-free section of Cinestudy, episode 45, I believe, mini-review on The Green Knight. Uh, thank you guys for listening, by the way. I don't, I, you know, I kind of say that as just, you know, that's what you say at the start and the end, but sincerely thank you for listening. I know I'm very inconsistent. I know I'm all over the place with when I'm able to record and when I'm not able to record and when episodes get up. And those, those who stick out the weights and listen to these episodes, I'm very appreciative. So, um, yeah, thank you for listening to this spoiler free section of The Green Knight. And if you want to hear some specific details of stuff I loved about David Lowry's The Green Knight, stick around because right now, it's time for the spoilerful section. Alright guys, spoilers ahead, you've been warned. Uh, so let's just put it out there. I don't understand the significance of the stuff with the pond, and, and uh, I think it's St. Winifred, and the stuff at Joel Edgerton's castle at all. Again, Joel Edgerton's castle makes a ton of sense in the Arthurian legend, like the significance of it. It comes right back around, and it's like, oh, all your questions are answered, and here's why everything that happened there was important. Here it feels very tangential because uh, the idea of I'll just put it out there. In the original tale, Joel Edgerton's character is kind of behind everything. He's behind the Green Knight. Here, we don't get that sort of payoff. That's not the story David Lowry wants to tell, but it makes that whole element of the story now feel kind of like, all right, where did this go? What was the point of this? Um, so I think there's, you know, I'm, I'm certain there's some subtext I'm missing. Uh, in the story, 
Garwin literally kisses the lady of the house and then he kisses Joel Edgerton to almost indicate, yeah, like this is what I've been given, uh, which, you know, the point of the exchange is also odd. Here, I feel like it's just much more symbolic, but I have no idea what that symbol is. Like, obviously, uh, Sir Garwin is not going to do to Joel Edgerton what the lady of the house has done to him. But, uh, you know, beyond that, it just seems kind of strange and pointless. Uh, you know, there are some ideas you could run with in this scene where, where Joel Edgerton and uh, Garwin meet in the forest for the last time. But I, like I said, it's like I don't really have any evidence to back up any reading of uh, that whole side plot because it doesn't ever come back in any significant way. So, and of course, it sets up the green belt, which is so uh, essential to the remainder of the story. But I don't know, maybe there was a better way to do that. The pawn stuff, also strange and how that character comes back around. Um, but I do love the visuals of that scene as well as just the tension of that scene of what is actually going on. Uh, very, very interesting. That's probably my favorite turn into the surreal is that whole sequence, even though I don't really know the significance of it. I liked the juggling between, uh, you know, the ghosts and then the skeleton and, and who's there, who's not, when he goes underwater, all of that. And it's all very visually appealing. So very strong portion of the movie, even though, again, I'm not sure I understand <laughs> what David Lowry was going for there. And I don't even think that part's in the original tale, if I remember right. So um, the last thing that I'll say I'm flat out confused on is the sorceress and the mother, who are, I believe, the same person, his mother conjuring the Green Knight, and then also is the blindfolded woman at the house. At least that's how I believe it is in the, I'll say it, you know, I said it once, I'll say it a thousand times, the original Arthurian tale. Yeah, just that stuff seemed to be a bit all over the place. Like, I know there's an answer David Lowry has to tie all of the stuff with her appearances together and what it means and what's actually going on, like what the sorceress is meddling with and what, you know, what she's just there to, uh, you know, aid along in terms of um, Garwin's journey. Because it, it doesn't feel like his mother and the sorceress should be the same character. They don't really feel connected in any, in any way. And that's another reason why I feel like the whole sequence at the house, at the castle, is so confusing because Garwin is seeing two people he literally knows, even though they might be different characters, or maybe not in the case of this sorceress, and no answers are given in regards to that. So, uh, you know, again, I, I'm just I'm just not smart, and there's definitely answers out there that I just haven't thought of or read about yet, but, you know, it, it just felt like such a distraction from the story when we were at that castle. That was, it. everything slowed to a halt there, even though there were some great moments, and I very much enjoyed Alicia Vikander's monologue on the color green. So yeah, maybe it all owes a lot to the original tale, but I haven't quite wrapped my head around some of those moments. All right, so so just some uh, moments uh, I wanted to talk about. Uh, how about that 360 shot where uh, Garwin has been tied up, and we turn, and nature seems to be growing, and the inevitability, as I mentioned, of, of time passing him by, and we turn back around, and he's dead. He's a skeleton. And then we reverse with this sort of mystical wind that comes through. We come back around and Garwin is uh, no longer uh, dead. And he's like, no, I'm going to get out of this. And he almost slices up his wrist to do so. I mean, certainly there's just a, a commentary here on just giving up <laughs> and how that's just doesn't work in this case. And Garwin's got to fight. Um, what actually happened, I believe, has to be some manipulation from his mom uh, with the idea of that wind, which... Maybe it was just a, a trick on the eye, but that seemed to be what started to reverse the direction of that 360. I really like the concept of that 360 because uh, if you remember, we had the calendar that showed the year going by with the puppet show. That was a circle as time went, you know, another year here. We're following another circular path. 
uh, true detective fans out there know that time is a flat circle. So Time is a flat circle. I thought I'd play with some of those ideas in a fun little way there on more of a visual way as well as with the prop in the puppet show. I liked that it took its time, too. It didn't rush that spin around. It let the audience slowly realize what was happening as nature continued to grow and these flowers were popping up, uh, which, again, ties in very heavily with the idea of this green night being an inevitability. Nature is taking over, and he's going to have to face this guy. Um, but if you're sticking around in the sportful section, I mean, look, we know what we're here for. The ending, the La La Land ending, as I like to call it, the alternative... Uh, what could have been, only to find out maybe that wouldn't have been better necessarily. Um, maybe it would have, um, but no, we're going to change and we're going to come back and have our realization like this is what it is now with one one final little stinger. Uh, <laughs> that's what I was thinking the entire time. Probably first realized what was going on and that this was going to be some sort of, uh, you know, premonition of what could happen when Garwin was just kind of unanimously named king and then, of course, the magic belt uh, constantly being shown, maybe shown a bit too much. I think he could have left a hair more to the audience to figure out, like trusting the audience on that one a little bit. Could have been nice because we do get some just direct shots of like, remember the belt. Remember the belt. The belt is important. Here's the belt. You see it? There's the belt. Remember the belt. But I thought the whole idea of that ending was just so well executed in the same way as La La Land. You know, having this large portion, no dialogue, just following the actions of what happens if Garwin wears this belt you know, runs away from the Green Knight, where do things go from there? And I thought they were going to go bold with it, and that it was going to end with that, like, uh, as I was watching, I'm like, they're going to end this movie with him just being king, being a coward, um, but that he lives on as king, and that's it. And then people start storming the castle, and then I'm like, okay, now they're going to end it, I think, with him removing this belt, and his head's just going to fall off. I, I called that. I felt very proud of that. I actually called that way earlier. I think it was during the scene where uh, his new wife tries to take the belt off and he refuses, I'm like, I bet you if he ever takes this belt off, that head is just coming right off. And sure enough, that happened. I was like, ah, nice. I figured it out. But then I was like, yeah, I think they're going bold with this and it's going to end like this. And I would have loved that. But uh, they instead flash back and I'm not disappointed with what they do either. I think it's equally strong, which is that Garwin's like, you know what? After chickening out three times ahead of the large premonition, he's like, I'm ready. And he takes the belt off and the Green Knight says, I'm proud of you. You know, he's like, good job, uh, brave Sir Knight. Um, and you're like, you know, the Green Knight respects this. He followed through on the game. Um, but that doesn't mean he gets rewarded with like a easy way out. No, uh, he says now off with your head. And uh, we're led to believe that, yeah, that Garwin meets his demise at that point, but does so with honor. And so this was like I was saying, you could see that as like, Honor prevented this year-long struggle of him being an absolute coward, of being sort of a tyrant, like when you know one of the uh, the people in his kingdom throws a rock at him, and you immediately hear that uh, that man who threw the rock uh, be killed, uh, abusing his lover at home, whose name I can't remember, but you know Alicia Vikander, number one, in favor of marrying this you know more prestigious and royal lady, and abusing in the sense of just getting a child out of her essentially, and then leaving her by the wayside, which was like. Uh, my theater, you could feel it was just like the scorn was real for Garwin in that moment. You know, all that is uh, is saved, and he is uh, he takes the honorable way. So it's like, hey, maybe honor is the best way out. It prevented all these terrible things from happening. Or you can look at it as like, hey, why even have the honor of accepting this game and going to meet the Green Knight to begin with? He didn't have to go out there to the chapel. That was a voluntary choice for his honor and for his reputation that his made. So maybe it's a comment on like, you know, you try to uphold your idea of, you know, your personal toughness and your honor and your masculinity. 
it just leads to harm and ruin and he ends up dead and nothing positive came of it. In fact, other people suffered along the way. Um, you can certainly look at it either way, which I think is very interesting by the premise of this tale. Certainly source material, very strong, but David Lowry adding some flourishes on top with that La La Land ending. <laughs> I won't miss a chance to talk about it as a La La Land ending, I, I'm, even though I'm sure La La Land wasn't the first. And and again, it's very impressive with no dialogue. It'd be very easy to say out loud, look what this guy's become. But instead, David Lowry leaves it up to you to kind of figure it out as, as it's going along and uh, you know watch some of these visual examples of the coward and the tyrant that Darwin has become. This guy we've rooted for for so long, just slipping into the exact opposite of everything we want him to be. We want him to be this hero that proves himself, and instead he's just backing down when the moment comes and, and taking the easy way out and being practically rewarded for it. So like I said, that's where the character of Garwin is so interesting because there's so many actions he makes that are so questionable and easy to disapprove of. And yet there's still this part of you that's like, Garwin, you can do it. I believe in you. Please pull through Garwin. And of course he does, but not without a few bumps along the way and a few nicks to his reputation. Uh, last thing is I want to talk about that specific color example of two, a, a pairing of shots that I found was really cool. Um, and I get all these from the fact that I took AP Lit <laughs> several years ago and we learned about all these, you know, different ideas and big concepts, what color would be associated with them most practically in literature and in film and stuff like that. So yellow, and this is kind of obvious just from like, uh, you know, driving. <laughs> like yellow is often caution as well as just kind of cowardice. Cowardice is another thing that's strongly associated with yellow. That's the tie if you're going to pick a color for cowardice that's often given in uh, in literature. So sure enough, it makes sense that the entire sky is this bold yellow when Garwin walks in. Very tentatively, like, do I really want to be here? Am I going to really kneel in front of this knight? Which he walks over very slowly. Also, great sound in this scene. Like the sound of nature and the creaking of the branches, which also is something I failed to mention the Green Knight sounds awesome when he walks around. He's got these heavy, creaking footsteps. It's so cool. Back to what I was talking about. It's this bold yellow, this, like, caution, careful. You know, it's kind of obvious. But also, like, this cowardice, like, you can tell Garwin is, is about two steps away, you know, one one weird sound away from turning the other way and leaving. Because he doesn't have to be here, and the Green Knight is not moving yet. He's just sitting in his chair. But then, snap cut, Garwin has stuck it out. It's night. And what do we have? We have this strong blue and a big literature thing with blue is loyalty and that's him sticking it out you know he's like no you know what i'm gonna do it i'm going to stick this out i'm going to kneel in front of the screen night and let this happen uh and uh it's like you see firsthand the commitment that garwin now has that he's still kneeling there he's kind of dozing off but the green knight hasn't moved but neither has garwin uh but when everything comes to uh an end and the green knight awakens what are we back to we're back to yellow and he's wearing that belt uh which he has been the whole time but now it's like you know, maybe there's a doubt here. You know, I'm not going to say I was thinking this while I was watching those shots, but it did occur to me on the drive home. I was thinking about some of those striking colors because I love with movies with striking colors, trying to kind of pair together some of those ideas of, of what colors can represent. Because that is one of the, I think, the most fun things a director probably has to manipulate because it's it gives your film a great look. You can get across some ideas and some moods, whether consciously or subconsciously for the audience, you know, like I mentioned earlier. Um, so I, I had fun thinking about that, and this was one of the first ones that kind of came to mind. Again, it's kind of surface level, level. It's like, okay, Garwin was careful, and then now he's like, no, now I'm going to stick it out, and then he's back to like, maybe I should run away. But, you know, it, is it a coincidence that that lines up so one for one? I, I don't really think so. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely have had fun thinking about that, uh, and, uh, and in other movies with this sort of you know big pop aesthetic to it, big pops of color. 
And yeah, with a director as particular of David Lowry, I don't think anything is just, you know, coincidence. Like, oh, I just happened to choose blue and yellow for those moments because they looked cool. You know, I don't think it's as easy as that. So even though my read is not necessarily super complex either, just some stuff I pulled from a study guide not so long ago. <laughs> All right, that's it. really it. I know I'm missing some stuff. There's so many great moments in this movie that I haven't even mentioned. You know, like it took to the spoiler full section to even bring up the puppet show stuff or I haven't touched much on uh, the St. Winifred stuff beyond just how cool it looks and that I like the moment. This is a movie that if you have a, even an inkling of a desire to see it, you should do it in the theaters. Don't choose old. Don't choose Jungle Cruise, even though I haven't seen either. Go give the Green Knight a shot. You know, form your own opinion on it because this is a movie that is certainly splitting people. And like I said at the very beginning, I warn you to not go in with many expectations um, because uh, you could have expectations that are way too high, that are way too low, which, you know... Not, I mean, low expectations are never that bad. But you could also just have expectations in the wrong place. You know, you could be expecting a Lord of the Rings type adventure. It's not that. You could be expecting something as contemplative and like huge ideas as a ghost story from David Lowry. It's not that either. It's, it's this weird middle ground between the two. I think Lowry is, is an amazing director to have on this story. There's a lot of people that would go for the uh, gratuitous violence and like amazing adventure and quest version of this story, which could be great. There's a lot of people that, that would go for this extremely abstract version of the story because it has so many supernatural and magical elements. That could be really great too, but David Lowry brings in elements of both in a very strong way. Uh, I highly recommend The Green Knight. Uh, and uh, yeah, if you get a chance to see it in theaters, that's when you should do it uh, for sure. All right, guys, that has been this episode of Study. Follow me on Instagram at Study Podcast. I don't use Facebook. I'm going to stop plugging the Facebook Nobody emails. I'm going to stop plugging the email. Letterbox is the biggest thing if you want to see some of the movies I'm seeing, some quick little reviews, some lists I make. That is at Film Dylan. And if you're not on Letterbox, you should be. Because if you're a movie fan, it's the best place around. It's so much fun. It's addicting. I spend way too much time on it. Definitely go get on there and follow me at Film Dylan. All right, guys. Thank you again for listening. One more thank you for sticking out the fact that episodes come out so sporadically and at weird times and never consistently. And then we go on huge droughts. I wish I could change, but, you know, life is life. I got a lot of stuff going on at various times. It's tough to always just turn out an episode. I'd really like to. I think there's a way for me at some point to be committed to that. Um, but I appreciate those of you that hang on and just listen when episodes are out. I'm very, very appreciative of that. And, uh, you know, this is a lot of fun to do this show. I, I, you know, I try to squeeze it in when I can, and I'm sorry for when I can't. But uh, always know that there is another episode on the horizon. I'm not even if I'm away for weeks and weeks and weeks. There's another episode somewhere remotely in my mind, in the works, or on paper, or you know, I, I have something I'm gonna do next. So, uh, thank you guys again for listening. I have been Dylan. This has been Cine Study, Episode 45, The Green Knight Mini Review, and I'll catch you next time.